Part 4 of Isle of the Undead by Lloyd Arthur Eschbach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 4 In Corio's Hands Cliff awoke with the sun glaring down on his face. He opened his eyes, and stabbing lances of light pierced his eyeballs. Momentarily blinded, he pressed his hands across his face and struggled erect. There was a sick feeling in his stomach, and the back of his head throbbed incessantly. He touched the aching area and winced. A lump, like an egg, thrust out his scalp. It was sticky with blood. He stood there, weaving from side to side, trying to recall something. As memory came, he groaned, Vilma. He had last seen her racing madly toward Corio, lured by his damned horn. It was daylight now. The sun had risen at least an hour ago. An hour, with Vilma gone. Shaking his head to clear it, and gritting his teeth at the pain, he stalked along the wall. Turning the corner, he strode on toward the crooked steps. The lifeless terrain reeled dizzily, but he went on resolutely. The pain in his head was fading to a dull ache, and as he mounted the steps, strength seemed to flow back into his legs. With every sense taut, he passed into the gloom of the castle. A quick glance he cast about, saw the body of Stark lying where it had fallen. No use to examine it, there was no life there. His gaze swept up the slope of the stairway to the altar at its head, lingered on the phosphorescent eye of light still glowing there. Then he shrugged grimly and moved on to the doorway in the wall. Warily, he peered in. As his eyes adjusted themselves to the greater darkness, he saw a narrow stairway leading downward into a shadowy corridor. Somewhere in the tunnel's depths, a faint light shone. He could see nothing more. He moved stealthily down the damp, dank stairs. At the bottom, he paused, listening. He could hear nothing. A hundred feet ahead, the corridor divided in two. A burning torch was thrust in the wall at the junction. Cliff nodded with satisfaction. Corio must be somewhere nearby, for only a human needed light. Silently, Cliff strode along the corridor. At the fork, he hesitated, then chose the right branch, for light glowed faintly along that passageway. The other led downward, black as the pits of hell. A doorway appeared in the wall ahead, and he moved warily, with fists clenched. Flickering torchlight filtered into the corridor. There was no audible sound. 
Now Cliff peered into a small chamber and gasped in sudden horror, his eyes staring unwinkingly at a spectacle incredibly pitiful. Here were the passengers of the Ariel, whitely naked and lying in little groups on the cold stone floor, huddled together for warmth. Their faces turned toward Darrell as he stood in the doorway, but there was no recognition in the vacuous eyes, no thought, no intelligence, and little life in the wide-mouthed stares. It seemed as though their souls had been drained from their bodies with their blood. Sickened, Cliff turned away, cursing his own helplessness to aid them, cursing Leon Corio, who was responsible for their plight. Black wrath gripped him as he moved on. Again the corridor branched, and again he kept to the right. Suddenly he halted, ears straining. He heard the sound of a voice, the hollow voice of Corio. It came faintly, but clearly, from a room at the end of the passageway. Cliff went forward, slowly. And so, my dear, Corio was saying, we entered into a pact with the Master, a pact sealed with blood. In exchange for our lives, we three were to bring other humans to this island for the feasting of the dead alive. Every third month, each of us must return with our cargo when the moon is full. And since we come back on alternating months, they have a constant supply of fresh blood. Usually, some of our captives live from full moon to full moon before they become like those of the galley, the undead. Some of these we waken when it suits our fancy. They are not like the masters. They awaken only when we call them. We three, or the masters. More than life they give us for what we do. Centuries ago, pirates used this island for refuge. They died, and they left their treasure in this castle. It lies in the room where the masters lie, and we three receive payment in gold and gems. Tonight I receive my pay, and tomorrow I leave on the Ariel, and you go with me. Cliff heard Vilma answer, and even while his heart leapt with relief, he marveled at the cool scorn in her voice. So I go with you, do I? I'd rather climb the stairs with the rest of your victims than have anything to do with you. You monster! When Cliff Darrell finds you... Darrell? Corio's voice was a frozen sneer. He'll do nothing. I'll find him, and he'll wish he could climb the stairs of blood. As for you... 
You'll go with me and like it. A drop of my blood in your veins, and you will belong to the master, as do I. We shall attend to that. But first, there is something else. More pleasant. His words fell to an indistinguishable purr. Still moving stealthily, Cliff hastened forward. Suddenly, Vilma screamed, and he launched himself madly across the remaining distance, stood crouching at the threshold. Vilma lay on an ancient bed, her wrists and ankles bound with leather thongs, drawn about the four tall bedposts. Only the torn remnants of her undergarments covered the rounded contours of her body, and Corio crouched over her, caressing the pink flesh. Vilma writhed beneath his touch. Cliff growled deep in his throat as he sprang. Corio spun around and leapt aside, but he was too slow to escape Cliff's powerful lunge. One hand closed on his thin neck, and the other, a rock-like fist, made a bloody ruin of his mouth. Howling with pain, Corio tried to sink his teeth in Cliff's arm. Cliff flung him aside, following with the easy glide of a boxer. Corio crawled to his feet, cringing, dodging before the nemesis that stalked him. Again Cliff leapt, and Corio, yellow with fear, darted around the bed and ran wildly into the hallway. At the door, Cliff checked himself, reason holding him. Corio could elude him with ease in this labyrinth of passages, and his first concern was Vilma's safety. He returned to the bed. Vilma looked up at him with such relief and thankfulness on her face that Cliff, with a little choked cry, flung himself to his knees beside the bed and kissed her hungrily. For moments their lips clung. Then Cliff straightened shakily, trying to laugh. We've got to get out of here, sweetheart, he said. I'm not afraid of Corio, but he knows things about this place that we don't know. After you're safe on the yacht, I'll come back and get him. He looked around for something with which to cut her bonds. On the wall above the bed were crossed a pair of murderous-looking cutlasses. Seizing one of these, Cliff wrenched it from its fastenings and drew it through the cords. She stood beside him, free. Your clothing... Cliff began, his eyes on her almost nude body. She blushed and pointed mutely to a heap of rags on the floor. Her eyes flamed wrathfully. He... he ripped them from me! The muscles of Cliff's jaws knotted, and he scowled as he surveyed the room for a drape or hanging to cover her. For the first time, he really saw the place. All the lavish splendor of royalty had been expended on this chamber, 
It might have been the bedroom of a king, except that the ancient furnishings belonged to no particular period, were, in fact, the loot of raids extended over centuries. Yet, despite its splendor, everything was repulsive, cloaked with the same air of unearthly gloom that hovered about the galley. He moved toward an intricately woven tapestry, but Vilma checked him, shuddering with revulsion. No, Cliff, it's too much like grave clothes. Everything about this place makes my flesh crawl. I'd rather stay as I am than touch any of it. Cliff nodded slowly. Let's go, then. They hurried through the corridors toward the stairway, with Cliff holding the cutlass in readiness. As they passed the room in which lay the Ariel's passengers, he tried to divert Vilma's attention, but she looked in, as though hypnotized. I saw them before, she whispered. It's awful. As they started up the stairway to the great hall, Cliff took the lead. He moved with utmost caution. It doesn't seem right, he said uneasily. We should hear from Corio. At that moment, they did hear from him, literally. From somewhere in the maze of tunnels came the sound of his accursed horn, the note of sleep. It swirled insidiously about their heads, numbing their senses. Cliff felt his stride falter, saw Vilma stumble, and he hurled himself forward furiously, gripping her arm. Hurry, he shouted, striving to pierce the fog of sleep. We've got to get out. Damn him. Vilma rallied for an instant and they reached the top of the stairs. On, across that wide, wide room, each step a struggle. On, while the droning sound floated languidly through every nerve cell. On, till their muscles could no longer move, and they sagged to the hard stone, asleep. Moments later, Cliff opened his eyes to meet the hellish glare of Leon Corio. Corio smiled thinly. So, you awaken. Good. I would have you know the fate I have planned for you. You see this? He held the cutlass high above Daryl's throat, like the blade of a guillotine. With this, I could end your life quite painlessly and quickly. It really would prove entertaining for Miss Bradley, I'm sure. He chuckled faintly behind bruised and swollen lips. Cliff squirmed, striving to rise, then subsided instantly. He was bound hand and foot. I could kill you, Corio repeated musingly, but that would lack finesse. 
his teeth bared in a feline smile. And it would be such a waste of blood. Instead, I'll take you out to the galley and let you lie there till her crew awakens tonight. They have tasted blood, and after tonight we'll taste none again for another month. I imagine they'll drain you dry. The last phrase was a vicious snarl. Cliff heard Vilma utter a suppressed sob, and he turned his head. She lay close by, bound like him with strips of leather. Furiously, Cliff strained at his fetters, but they held. And while you wait for those gentle Persians to awaken, Corio continued in tones caressingly soft, you can think of your sweetheart in my arms. It may teach you not to strike your betters, though you can never profit by your lesson. Stooping, he raised Cliff's powerful form and managed to fling him over one shoulder. Then he moved from the great hall, down the stone steps, and across the dead plain with its sighing skeleton trees. He was panting jerkily by the time he came to the fissure leading to the cove, but he reached it, despite Cliff's two hundred pounds. Without pausing, he went on into the cavern, along the rock ledge, to step at last upon the deck of the black galley. Pleasant thoughts, he said gently as he dropped Cliff to the spongy boards. You have only to wait till dark. Cliff listened to his rapid footfalls till they died in distance. Then there was no sound save his own breathing. Gradually his eyes became accustomed to the heavy gloom, and he saw that Corio had dropped him just at the edge of the rower's pit. There were white things down there, bones, pale as marble, scattered about aimlessly. Could, could those bones join to make the rowers who would arise with the night? It seemed absurd was absurd, yet he knew it was so. He had seen too much to doubt it. He rolled over on his back and stared upward into the shadows. He must lie here, helpless, while Corio returned to Vilma, did with her as he pleased. Perhaps he might even transform her into a blood-tainted monster like himself. He saw her again in that room of ancient splendor, spread-eagled to the bed, and the muscles corded in his arms, and his lips strained white in a futile effort to break free. Interminably he lay there, waiting. The galley was damp with the chilling dampness of a sepulchre, and the dampness penetrated deeper and deeper, Clamping his jaws together to prevent their quivering, he struggled against a rising tide of madness which gnawed at his reason. 
His mind began to crunch and jangle like a machine out of gear, threatening to destroy itself. On and on, in plodding indifference, the stolid moments passed, till at last Cliff realized that it was growing darker. He rolled over on his side and stared into the galley pit, eyes fixed on the inert masses of white. Soon they would move. Soon the undead would rise. His thoughts, touched by the whips of dread, sped about like slaves seeking escape from a torture pit. And, abruptly, out of the welter of chaotic ideas, came one straw of sanity. He seized it, his heart hammering with hope. Those Persian sailors were armed. Their swords and knives were real, for they cut flesh. Somewhere among their bones must lie sharp-edged blades. He struggled to the edge of the pit, let his feet drop over. As they touched, he balanced precariously for an instant, then fell to his knees. He peered feverishly about, among white bones, moldering garments, and rusted armor, and saw a faint glimmer of light on pointed steel. He sank forward on his face in the direction of the gleam, turned over, squirmed and writhed till he felt the cold blade against his hands. He caught it between his fingers and began sawing back and forth. It was heartbreaking work. Age had dulled the weapon, and long slivers of rust flaked off. But the leather which bound him was also ancient. Though progress was slow and the effort laborious, Cliff knew his bonds were weakening. But it was growing darker. Even now he could see only a suggestion of gray among the shadows. If those undead things materialized while he lay among them, sweat stood out on his forehead and he redoubled his efforts, straining at the leather as he sawed. With a snap, the cords parted and his hands were free. A single slash severed the thongs about his ankles and he stood up, leapt to the deck. Not an instant too soon. There was movement in the pit, a hideous crawling of bones, assembling themselves into skeletal form. Cliff waited to see no more. There were limits to what one could see and remain sane. With a bound, he crossed the rotting deck and sprang ashore. Despite the dark, he almost ran from the madness of that cave, ran till he passed through the wall of rock till he saw the rim of the moon gleaming behind the castle. End of Part 4